0: About 15 years ago, maybe it was a little longer than that, there was a show that started, that came to, um, I don't remember what channel it was on, but there was no television show I'd ever seen quite like it. It's still on today, I believe, and it's called Whose Line Is It Anyways? And it's an improv show, and what they do is they put four comedians on TV, and they're making up the scenes on the spot, and they give them these games that they have to play, and it's pretty funny. And uh, some of the games that I like, uh, there's one game they play called Party Quirks, And the way this works is that one of the four comedians pretends that they're the host of a party. And the other three are given really unusual little quirks that they have to act out on stage. And the host has to uh, guess what they are. I remember one time at a youth retreat. Crazy things happen at youth retreats. And I was a youth pastor for 12 years. And one year at a youth retreat, we did party quirks. And they they called four youth pastors up, including myself. And I was one of the guys that had to come into the party with an odd quirk. And they gave me a little slip of paper to say, this is your quirk. And I opened my piece of paper and it said, you're a baby calf being born. I was like, "How am I gonna? How am I gonna do this?" Now, I spent most of this week. I spent more time on the, on finding a picture of it this week than I spent on the sermon. Not true. Not true. But I I I emailed every I text every friend I had back then and said, "Please, somebody, do you have a picture of this moment? Because it would have been amazing. I, I if I ever find it, I'm gonna show it to you." But basically, what I had to do was pretend I was being born out of one of the other people like so I had to like get on the ground and like kind of like push myself through their legs and then fall on the ground like my legs didn't work yet like a baby calf and then it was it was ridiculous but you know we we watch these things on television and I remember watching this show with Aaron when we were dating and we just we would we loved it it was so funny and then one of the games they had was a game called questions only and in questions only they would give the actors a scene to act out but they could only use questions in their dialogue and whenever you whenever you forgot to say a question, you were eliminated from this scene. And we're going to look at a passage this morning in Luke chapter 10, and if you, if you study Jesus' life and if you study Jesus' teachings, sometimes it feels like Jesus is playing a game called questions only. A lot of times when Jesus was asked a question, he would answer with a question. And we're going to see here in Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at this familiar story that a lawyer, beginning verse 25, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he's trying to test Jesus. You know, people are trying to test him. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Pretty important question. What do I have to do to inher- inherit eternal life? And instead of giving an answer, Jesus gives him a question. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? Okay? You know those are two different questions. What's written in the Bible and how do you read it aren't always the same thing, right? And so Jesus is saying, what's written in the law and how do you read it? Now, he knew that this lawyer who was an educated Jewish man would have known the answer. And sure enough, he knew the answer exactly. He said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, see, you knew it all along. You know exactly what the answer is. You answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then the lawyer comes back with his own question. And this is the question I want us to look at this morning. He says in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, desiring to justify himself, desiring to prove himself, and to Jesus, he said, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? No, I have three daughters. One of them, who shall remain nameless, is a master of, at finding loopholes in commands and instructions for mom and dad, loopholes. She's always asking follow-up questions and it drives us crazy. I mean, it drives us crazy. So we'll be like, uh, we would like you to brush your teeth every single night for, you know, whatever, two minutes. We want you to brush your teeth every night for two minutes. And she'll say something like this, what if we're out of toothpaste? And then I'll say, well, then borrow our toothpaste. What if we're out? What if I can't find my toothbrush? Then put your toothpaste on your finger, like all of us have done at some point in desperation, and rub your finger on your teeth. Well, what if I don't have any teeth? <laughs> and I'm thinking, we're headed in that direction. Like, that's gonna happen pretty soon. <laughs> so, they're, they're always looking for loopholes. And, and the lawyer here is, he's looking for a loophole. Here's what he's thinking. Okay, so love my neighbor as myself because in these days when, when the Jewish teachers talked about neighbors, they almost always thought of a fellow Israelite, someone just like them. And so he's thinking to himself, certainly the word neighbor is restricted, right? I mean, let's be realistic. Let's be reasonable. There's got to be some restrictions on this word neighbor. It has to be an Israelite, not just any Israelite, but an, an Israelite of good character, right? That's my neighbor. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. We can't love everyone. That's crazy. Where do you draw the line? What about Tyrants. What about the Romans? What about the Gentiles? What about blasphemers? What about Samaritans? Really, Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole. And let's look. Jesus replies now. So Jesus replied first time with a question, and now he replies with a story. And here's a story. If you've been around the church at all, you're probably familiar with this story. It's known as the parable of the good Samaritan. And I want to read the first four verses of it to you. Beginning verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now let's pause for a second. The reason why the word down is there is it's simply because of an elevation issue. So Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than Jericho was. So it was literally a downward, downhill walk. And it was about a 17-mile walk. That's a That's a pretty long walk, right? It's a 17-mile walk. It's a steep walk. It's a dangerous walk. It's a walk where you are exposed uh, to robbers and dangers. And he goes on to say that the man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this would not have surprised the audience. This was actually very common on this road, that robbers would commonly uh, attack people and take everything they had, especially people who were traveling alone. Verse 31 says, now by chance a priest." was going down the road, the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. When we talk about our value of service as a church, this is what it means. We meet needs when we see needs. We meet needs needs, when we see needs, and there's a lot of ways in which we should be serving each other, serving our community, serving the church, and this morning what I want to do is I really want to look at, using this story as a backdrop, three reasons why I think people don't serve, three things that keep us from serving, and then I want to look at the end as what is our truest motivation, what's our reason for serving, so three reasons we don't serve, and the first one we see very clearly in this story, and it's this, personal bias, I think sometimes personal bias or a sense of superiority to someone else or to a different type of people keeps us from serving them. And we see this here as the Jewish leaders pass by this Samaritan, now, uh, or pass by this other Jew. Now what's going on here? The hatred between Judea, the Jews, and the Samaritans went back over 400 years, and it centered around racial purity. Because while the Jews were in Babylonian captivity, they had worked very hard to keep their purity, but the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrians. And so in the eyes of a Jewish person, the Samaritans were compromising mongrels. They were half-breeds. They were spiritually inferior. They were racially inferior. They were socially inferior. A Jewish person would never serve a Samaritan. They would never stop for a Samaritan, and they would never expect a Samaritan to stop for them. In fact, when the Samaritan stopped and found him half-dead, they probably expected the story to end with, and the Samaritan finished him off. That's sort of the expectation here. The hatred was intense. The rabbis had a saying, let no man eat the bread of Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is the same as someone who eats swine's flesh. You know, for the Jewish culture, they were not to eat pork. The ultimate insult came in a specific Jewish prayer that concluded, God, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Now, it was both directions, of course. The the hatred went in both ways. And in in, in these days, some Jewish travelers actually had been murdered in Samaria. And then some Samaritans had defiled the the Jewish temple by throwing human bones in there, which was a big deal because they, they, they couldn't touch anything that was dead. You can imagine the shock of Jesus' listeners when the third person comes along and is a Samaritan, and it says he had compassion on him. See, they would have expected the Samaritan to be a villain, not to be a hero. What does this mean for us? Do we have our own personal biases that prevent us and keep us from serving people, from welcoming people, from loving people? You know, that that when you're talking about those people in conversation, for you, take a minute and reflect, who are those people? The people that aren't like you, the people that you don't get along, the people from the other sides of the track. Is there anyone, here's another way to think about this, is there anyone or is there any type of person that would walk in here and sit next to you and make you uncomfortable? Walk into this church and you would feel like, why are they here? I don't know that I want to welcome them based on how they look, where they live, what their beliefs are, uh, what their lifestyle is. And you would say, what are you you doing here? We have our biases. What type of people do we tend to look at and assume, well, they they got what they deserve, because of the way they lived their lives, and so, I mean, that's what people could have said about this man who was walking by himself from Jerusalem to Jericho. They could have said, everybody knows you don't travel alone. He traveled alone. Look what he got, and sometimes we have that mentality about people who are in bad situations, whether it's poverty or, 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 or a difficult home life, and we might say, well, they're individually 100% responsible for where they're at, And do we all bear individual responsibility in our lives? Of course we do. But there are other issues. And even if it was all their fault, does that excuse us from having mercy on them, from serving them, and from having compassion on them? You know, Later in the New Testament, James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about this in James chapter 2. I don't think this is going to be on the screen for you, but listen to what he says. He's talking to the church, and he says, listen, church... When people walk into this building, walk into your life, walk into these gatherings, if you show partiality, you know what partiality is? If you show preference for this type of person, now it's not always aggressive, right? It's not always overt. I'm not talking about obvious, like, no, no, this seat is taken. I'm talking about the idea like that there are people who would walk in or people that are in your life that you say, they're more worth my time and my attention than this type of person. I'm more glad to serve them than I am to serve them, and here's why. This is what James is talking about. He says, someone walks into your church, walks into your life, walks into your circle of influence, and you show partiality. James says, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. And James views partiality as such a significant sin that he then takes the opportunity to remind us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of it all. So James is saying, you might think partiality is not a big deal, but here's the thing. Partiality makes you convicted and guilty Of breaking the entire law It's that big enough of a deal And a couple of verses later This is where we get the famous statement For judgment is without mercy To one who has shown no mercy And then this Mercy triumphs over judgment We're quick to judge We're quick to assume We're quick to jump to conclusions And see somebody And hear about somebody And think we know everything about them But mercy is the better way Mercy triumphs over judgment. The second reason why I think we don't serve sometimes is inconvenience. Anyone else hate interruptions? It's funny, I was—I uh, have a rhythm on Sunday mornings, so I get up and I, I like to be in the building about 8 o'clock, and uh, I'll come in, and sometimes the team's here with me, and we'll, we'll, we'll unlock the doors, we'll turn the lights on, we'll turn the heat up, we... Um, You know, we get the coffee going, we put out the breakfast goods, and usually by about 8.30, we're done with all that. And at that point, I like to go into the office, and I like to sit down with my sermon notes, and I like to pray, and I like to read through my sermon, and I like to do that. Well, I was reading through my sermon this morning and getting basically right to the point where I say, don't we all hate interruptions? And I get a text from home, and the text is this. Madeline's sick, or she's acting weird, I, I don't know if I'm going to bring her this morning And the girls want to come And now I'm looking at my clock Because we actually had to do worship practice this morning Because we didn't do it last night So I knew we had worship practice at 9.15 It's like 9 o'clock I live about 8 minutes away So I'm like, I want to get Lily and Caroline So I jump into my car And I run over to get them And I, and I come back And the whole, whole time I'm thinking Man, I, this interruption is so inconvenient In my morning It was like God was saying This is what I'm talking about <laughs> like, like I'm proving my point to you right now we hate interruptions. I mean, anything. Maybe you've been watching your favorite show or a game, and all of a sudden, some sort of news flash breaks in and ruins your show halfway through. Anybody ever, in, and look, com, common sense tells us this is more important than what I was watching. What, what's, you know, you, they don't break in for small reasons. They break in for big reasons, right? So this is more important. Picking up my daughters is more important than me having some personal quiet time. That's what common sense and logic, but what do your emotions tell you? How dare they? How dare they? (laughs) And we take every interruption in our lives as a personal affront, right? Like this is personal now. And so we want to serve, but we want to serve on our schedule. We want to determine when we serve. We want to determine who we serve. We want to determine the limitations around our service, right? So I'll serve, but this is when I'll serve. This is where I'll serve. This is who I'll serve. And this is as long as I'll serve. And then anything beyond that... And there is a type of person, by the way, who likes to serve only if they've initiated the service, but if somebody asks him to serve, it's always an inconvenience. We have this idol in our hearts sometimes, this deep love for comfort and for convenience in having it our way. Sometimes we're inconvenienced because we feel like we're not getting anything out of it, and we ask ourselves, yeah, I'll serve, but what do I get out of it? I remember one thing that my dad would say is this, that the true test of spiritual maturity is what you do for those who can do nothing for you in return. Is that good? The true test of spiritual maturity, no, 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 spiritual maturity is about how loud I sing. No, 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 spiritual maturity is about how passionate I get. No, spiritual maturity is about how much I give or how, no, the test of true spiritual maturity is what do you do for people who can't do anything for you? You know, not this solder, not this whole scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, sort of deal. Right? Nothing for you. And is it inconvenience to serve? It is, of course. Because it, it it makes a shift from living a life where it's all about getting everything I can get. How's all how can I arrange every circumstance so that I can be served to serving others? So the third reason why I think we don't serve sometimes is this. Because we use the excuse that there's more important things for us to be doing. We have more important matters and more important priorities. And sometimes, sometimes, we even use religious language to mask it. And this is what happens in this story. So let's look again at the story. Jericho was one of the main spots where priests lived, I don't know why, but that's where the priests tend to live together. And so it was not unusual for that road to be used from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the priest, remember, the priest is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the priest was likely returning from having just performed a holy service in the temple. But here's something you need to know about Jewish laws. If the man was lying on the roadside and bleeding and dying and possibly dead, and the priest went over and touched him, the priest would automatically be ceremonially defiled, unclean, unable to carry out his service to God. That's what he would have told himself. So he would have said, listen, I know that this man could use me, but rather than risk defilement because I'm a holy person and I got God's work to do, I'm going to pass to the other side of the road. And what he's doing here is he is, in order to preserve legal cleanliness, he heartlessly is transgressing the second greatest commandment that God gave us, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so he does that. Then we see that the Levite comes by. Now the Levite, the second person, was not as high-ranking as the priest. They were highly privileged. This is what they basically did. They ran the church services. And he very well may have just ran a church service. But he's walking back, having just had this worship experience, thinking I've been worshiping God all day, and I've done my duty of worship to God. And here he has this opportunity to continue to worship God by helping someone in distress, but he just walks by him. In fact, the text, when you look very closely at the text, it actually indicates that the Levite walked up closely to look at the man and then crossed on to the other side. He came to get a good look, but then he walked by and Jesus, as Jesus told the story, the lawyers and the hearers were expecting something other than what they got. See, there was this thing called the threefold rhythm to storytelling back then, so Semitic storytelling. And they would tell things in threes. And so it wasn't unusual when Jesus said, there's three people that came by. There's the priest, there's the Levite. But here's what the audience would have expected the third person to be. Not a Samaritan. They would have expected the third person to be just a normal Israelite, just a regular Jewish layman because many people were unhappy with priests and levites and they kind of thought down on them and so they expected oh I know how Jesus is going to finish the story he's going to show that it's not the really it's not the holy people that do the good things it's just the average Jewish person it's the average good guy Jew who will come along and show the clergy up and slap the establishment in the face and many of them in the audience would have applauded it but no one expected Jesus to say a Samaritan and then certainly no one expected him to say that the Samaritan had compassion let's finish the story verse 34 it says this The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. You see him inconveniencing himself. He's spending his oil, which was valuable. He's pouring out his wine, which was to give him strength and sustenance for his journey. He's making himself vulnerable to robbers, right, by stopping to help. And now the animal that he was riding on, he gives up and places the Jewish man on it. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. Now two denarii was enough money to pay for 24 days of food, or in my case, 12 days of food, but 24 days of food. And he gave the two denarii to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He ensured that this man would lack for nothing. That's the end of the story. And then Jesus asks another question. Looks at the lawyer and says, So, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. It's interesting that the lawyer wouldn't even say the Samaritan. Couldn't. Mm, couldn't say it. The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This whole thing started with a question, right? Who is my neighbor? And it's sort of reminiscent, if you know the Old Testament, of Cain and Abel. The original brothers from Adam and Eve, Cain becomes jealous of Abel in some way, strikes him down, kills him, sheds his blood, God comes to Cain and says, hey, where's Abel? And what is Cain's question to God? Am I, am I my brother's keeper? It's the same sort of deal here. It's the exact same sort of question. Who, am I responsible for that person? Am I responsible to them? And when you look at people in your lives, whether it's people in this church, people at your workplace, people in your neighborhood, it would be very easy in our world today, in our society to say, what do I owe them why would I owe them anything? I barely know them. They, they bother me. They annoy me. They root for the Red Sox. Like, why would I ever serve that person? And this is, this is at the heart, this is the heart of this question. Who is my neighbor? But it's the wrong question. Here's the right questions. Ready? Who in my life needs mercy? Who needs mercy? Who in my life could benefit from some kindness? Here's another way of asking that. Who can't? Benefit from a little kindness. You ever hear anybody complain about too much kindness being directed to them? Oh, it's too many people being kind to me. It's terrible. (laughs) Too many people showing me mercy. Too many people encouraging me. Too many people loving me. Too many people asking me how they can serve me. The questions you should be asking is who needs mercy? Who needs kindness? Who needs you to serve them? And then when you identify that person, here's the answer that's your neighbor. That is your neighbor. And here's what Jesus does. He's a brilliant storyteller. And what he's doing in this story is he's redefining for us the word neighbor. I want you to hear this phrase, and it's simply this, that according to Jesus, neighbor is not defined by proximity or commonality, but by opportunity. Let me say that again. Neighbor is not defined by proximity. In other words, when we think of neighbors, we think of the people that live near us. Are they your neighbor? Yes, they are. But Jesus is saying it's more than that. Neighbor is not defined by who lives near you, who lives down your street, who lives in your community, who goes to your school, who works with you. That's not the limitation. Neighbor is not defined by proximity. Neighbor is not not defined by commonality. Who do I have things in common with? Who am I like and who do I like? Those are easy people to serve. But neighbor, Jesus is saying in the story, is defined by opportunity. And anyone you have the opportunity to show mercy to, that person automatically just became your neighbor. So the reasons we don't serve, the reasons we don't serve, our biases, our need for comfort, our excuses. But let's talk here about the reason why we do serve. Why do we serve as Christians? And we're going to finish in just a couple minutes, but I want to take you to, back to James, because James is so practical on this topic. And I want you to see and hear what James says in chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. James says this, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith But does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now hold up. (laughs) Can that faith save him? This is a difficult passage because the vast majority of Paul's writings would make you think, yes, saved by faith alone in Christ alone, right? Not saved by our works. But Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, said it this way, and this is super helpful. We've not been saved by our good works, but we have been saved for our good works. Does that make sense? You've not been saved by your good works. Your good works do not make you righteous before a holy God, but when he reaches down and saves you and pulls you out of where you're at, you've now been saved for good works. There are good works in you to be done. Luther also said this, God may not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God may not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so James is not here preaching a counterfeit gospel. He's not preaching a false gospel. He's not contradicting uh, in any way what Paul writes. He's complimenting what Paul writes. So Paul says, yes, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's grace alone that saves you. But by the way, if you say you're saved and there's no evidence of the salvation in your life, you you really haven't tasted and seen. Faith that remains alone is of no good. It's of no worth. And this is what James is saying here. You can say you love Jesus, but if we don't, if if, he, if it's not obvious in the way that you love others, then there's a disconnect. There's a problem. James goes on to say in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? That's lip service. That's spiritual emptiness. What good is that? James is saying, do something. Don't just be a people who talk. Be a people who act. Don't be a people who just come into a service, but be a people who are looking to serve wherever they're at. And then verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So here's what James is saying, that our works are the evidence of our faith, right? Our works are not the substitute for our faith, but they're the evidence of our faith. They come out of a growing relationship with Jesus. So this is not a teaching that says our works can justify us, but it's a teaching that our works are needed by God, and by the people. And, and here's why we serve. And I, I made this a little rhymey for you, so maybe you have a chance of memorizing this. I was going to have us all chanted together, but I thought that's a little cultish. So, um, <laughs> But it, this, is, this is why we serve. Ready? This is what James is saying. We don't serve to earn, we serve in return. Okay? We don't serve to earn, because you can't earn God's love you can't earn his forgiveness, you can't earn his mercy, and you can't earn his grace. I don't care how good of a life he lived, you can't earn it. That's what the gospel says. So we don't serve to earn, but we serve in return, or in response. Well, in return for what, you might think? What have we gotten? In response to what? And I want to take you to one final verse in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus just days before he goes to the cross, says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life, give his life as a ransom for many. Here's Jesus, the Son of God. If anybody could have had a right to say, hey, serve me, why would I be serving you? Why am I washing your feet? I'm the Son of God. You wash my feet. Why am I doing these things for you? You do things for me. But he said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus, the ultimate servant, as Paul writes about in Philippians, the God who came down and became man, who became a servant, who suffered a death, and not just any death, but the death of a criminal on a cross, Jesus who came to serve becomes two things for us in this verse. He is our example, right? What an example that he would serve. But he's also our substitute. He served in our place. So every time you've messed up and you've not served somebody or you've served somebody with the wrong heart motivation, you know what? Jesus Christ got it right in your place. And the more that that truth settles into our hearts that he was our substitute, not just our example, the more it actually empowers us to gladly serve. Not serve out of obligation or out of duty, but serve because, oh my goodness, no matter Jesus has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. He served me. Think about this story. This good Samaritan stops by this man who is near dead and pours oil and wine on him and puts him on his animal and takes him to an inn and provides for his needs for months. But Jesus Christ comes to us, and we weren't half dead. We were all the way dead in our sin. That's what the Bible says, dead in our sin. And Jesus pours his life out on us his very life. He didn't just give us some some oil and some wine and some of his possessions. He gave his life for us, right? And he did this not just to take care of us, our physical needs, but to take care of our spiritual needs and not just for a short period of time, but for eternity. And when we have that in the center of our hearts, Jesus serving us, it'll make us a people who serve and who don't serve begrudgingly, but serve eagerly, who serve aggressively, who don't wait to be asked, but can't wait to ask, where can I serve? How can I help? Jesus gave everything for us, his life. What is our response? Here's the question. Do we live like that's true? Do we serve like that's true? Now, let me talk about, real quickly as we close, the difference between a life, someone living to be served, and someone living to serve. When you live to be served, here's 11 things that are true about you. If you live to be served, then life is all about me. It's all about me. Everyone in my life exists for my personal happiness. I'm the sun in the galaxy, and everyone wrote, just sort of revolves around, revolves around me. If you live to be served, then you have this mentality. Some people deserve my help. Yeah, some people do, and I'll tell you who they are. If you live to be served, you'll miss opportunities to bless others. You'll need to be noticed, applauded, and recognized when you do serve. So you'll serve, but the second someone doesn't notice you're serving, you're like, well, I don't know. Why did I even show up today? I mean, nobody... Why am I even here? Nobody seems to appreciate me. No one's super glad I'm here. I didn't get a star today. When you live to be served, we make excuses about why we can't or why we shouldn't serve. Well, I tried to serve in the past. It just didn't work out great, so I'm just not going to ever serve again. We see serving as a burden. When we live to be served, then some acts of service are below us. We'll do certain things, but not everything, not anything. You know, I'll serve on stage where you can see me, but I won't serve off stage where you can't. I like being seen. That's great. But nah, nursery, no one sees me in there except for those stinky little kids. I don't, I don't want to serve in there. When we live to be served, here's what happens eventually. People will avoid you. They will because they'll, they'll, they'll know that you're a taker, not a giver. Our disobedience actually will limit the difference that we can make in the kingdom. And we'll serve, but we'll serve only to advance our own agenda. So that's what it looks like when we live to be served. So what does it look like when we as individuals and as a church live to serve? Here's some things. Life isn't about me, it's about others. It's always about others. Everyone in my life is someone I can love and someone I can serve, everyone. Every person is valuable, loved, even enemies. I look for opportunities to bless others. I don't care who gets the credit when I serve. I don't care who gets the notice. I don't care who gets the attention. My excuses, I doubt them. I question them. I examine them. Um, we see serving as a privilege when we live to serve. We serve wherever there's a need. We're willing to serve. No act of service is below us. People are attracted to you when you're eager to serve. Our obedience advances the kingdom. And instead of serving to advance our own agenda, here's what we do. We serve to advance the greater mission. So if a leader in the church comes to you and says, I know you're serving here, and I know you love serving here, but here's what I really think will advance the church advance the mission of the church, would you serve here? Instead of being like, nope, this is the only thing I do, this is my identity, this is who I am, I'm gonna serve my agenda, you're willing to say, hey, if this is gonna advance the mission of the church, that's what I care about, the mission. Not my agenda, but the mission of God. Erwin McManus said this way, he said, the needs of this world are too big for us to live small lives. Is that good? The needs of this world, the needs in this church the needs in clay, the needs in Syracuse, they're way too big for you and I to be living small, petty, inward-focused, navel-gazing lives. It's, the needs are too big. We have to serve. And we want to meet needs when we see needs. Love sees needs and, and finds a way to meet them. So here's the questions as we close this morning. What ways can I be serving in this church? You know, we talk about this on a regular basis because we believe that serving is an important next step. We believe that serving is a way of indicating, I, got my, I put my hand in, I'm invested, I'm, I'm in. And, and we have needs. You know, since January, it's only been, we're in April, although it still feels like January. Uh, we're, we're in April, in, in just from January to April, the number of people coming into this building on a Sunday morning on average has increased by 20 to 25%, which is a wonderful thing. You know where it's mostly increasing? In the children's ministry and in the nursery. So we give God thanks for that, and we expect to see that to continue. But here's what it means. It means we all got to serve. Like, that that nursery, we need need more helpers. We need more workers. They're at the point where they're going to have to start saying to families, it's not safe for us to take more children in here. We need to go from having the number of nursery workers that we have every Sunday morning to more every Sunday morning. What is that going to take? Well, you could say, well, all those nursery workers can just work twice as often. Or you could say, I'll I'll, I'll get involved. I'll I'll serve. I I can do something in there. I can greet. I can usher. I can work the computer. I can work the sound. I can do something. I want to really challenge you, especially those of us who serve in in, uh, visible positions, to make sure that you're serving not just in visible positions, but you're also finding a way to serve in an invisible position. Why? Two reasons. The church needs you to, but more importantly, you need you to. Because if you're only serving in visible positions, it's very possible that you're missing the opportunity for invisible service to form and shape you into the image of of our servant savior, Jesus Christ. How can you serve in the church? By the way, it's not just about serving in the walls of this church. How can you serve in the community? How do you find needs in the community? How do you serve in your neighborhood? How do you serve in your workplace? And moms and dads and children, how do you serve in your home? I don't want to hear about people who serve in a church but don't serve one another in their homes. How are we serving one another and thinking of one another and considering one another even in our own homes? We've been called to serve, to meet the needs that we see And when we look at Jesus giving his life to serve us, it gives us the motivation and the strength to serve with gladness and with strength. Let's pray together.